Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 295, and I had a conversation with Matt Rutherford. It was really fascinating talking to Matt. His stories are incredible, and I think I just scratched the surface. I'm going to read directly from uh, the documentary about Matt, Red Dot on the Ocean. Sitting in a jail cell at 17, he had an epiphany and began to turn his life around. His childhood was fraught with obstacles. Growing up in an obscure cult, he struggled with learning disabilities that made life excruciating at home and at school. He spent most of his early teens on the streets rather than in school. He bought his first sailboat sight unseen on the internet and learned to sail. At 21, he embarked on a single-handed voyage from the U.S. to Europe, West Africa, and back across the Atlantic to the Caribbean. It's pretty wild. (laughs) After reading about Ernest Shackleton and Arctic explorers, Matt became obsessed with sailing alone through the Northwest Passage, and that obsession became a 27,000-mile quest to be the first sailor to circumnavigate the Americas without stopping. He's still the only person to have ever done that. Once returning from his adventures, he immediately started working on a nonprofit organization to help scientists understand what's going on with our oceans. He believes that, quote, no one person can do everything, but everyone can do something. And he created Ocean Research Project, which can be found at oceanresearchproject.org. On top of all of these things, Matt also hosts the Single-Handed Sailing Podcast. I want to thank Scott Griffin for telling me about Matt. They have had their paths cross in the sailing community. And Scott reached out to me and said, oh, you've got to talk to Matt. He's a really fascinating guy. He's done all these things. And I'm really glad. So thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Okay, the usual stuff. Social media, Hey Human Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you want my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M, can be found on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I do my best to answer as soon as humanly possible, but I definitely answer every email. On heyhumanpodcast.com, you will find the links page. Every episode has a pile of links, and this one has got a lot, so definitely a good place to go check out for a deep dive into Matt's story and the things we talked about. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe as well. It's really helpful. Show your love. You can sign up for the mailing list and learn more about me personally and the music and art that I do by going to susanruth.com. If you're into music, go find me on Spotify or iTunes under Susan Ruth. My most recent album, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, is available worldwide. If you'd like to support Hey Human and keep it ad-free and keep the wheels on the bus and all that good stuff, there is a button on the heyhumanpodcast.com website says contribute. You click on that and you help keep the podcast going. If you'd like to get Hey Human merch, you can do so by clicking on the store button on heyhumanpodcast.com.
also helps support Hey Human, and you get cool stuff like pencil cases and t-shirts and hats and things, masks and some of my artwork that I've put on, book bags, that kind of thing. I believe that's all the business that there is. I hope y'all are doing well. Take care of each other. Be kind. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And thank you. Thank you for listening. All right. Here we go. Matt Rutherford, welcome to Hey Human. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Where in the world are you? Oh, I am in Tracy's Landing, Maryland, which is about a half half hour south of Annapolis, Maryland. I'm in a boat yard, in a lounge of a boat yard. My, I am building or finishing building a 72 foot steel schooner that's a research vessel for my nonprofit that does ocean research. And yeah, I just pulled away from that and uh, to talk to you here in the lounge. Nice. But the the boat is not too far. But uh, but yeah, that's where where in the world are you besides in a closet? <laughs> <laughs> I know closet. that much. I know I know that much. What's the rest of it? I'm in a closet in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica, oh. to be specific. I'm about okay. Santa four blocks from the water, so you would probably like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm real close to the bluff there. The bluffs. Um, My uh, sister lives right by you, by the way. Okay. Yeah. I have been to that area a couple of times. I'm not as much, I don't spend as much time on the West coast. You know, I've, I've been from Midwest and up around Cleveland originally, and I'm being out on the East coast. And I have sailed the Pacific ocean a couple of times, uh, but uh, like across the Pacific ocean, but um, it's always been more East coast. So it's, it's nice out there. It's a nice kind of vibe and mentality. The East coast can be a bit fast paced at times. But LA, I'm sure, is fast paced. All cities really are. It's it's weird how much Santa Monica is is different compared to Los Angeles. It's very relaxed. I mean, having the ocean right there, it can't help but embrace you into calmness. You know, I I find the ocean more intimidating standing on the beach and looking out at the ocean than I do being on a sailboat in the middle of like the Atlantic or Pacific. I don't know why, but something about standing on land, looking out at it just seems more scary than actually immersing. Maybe it's like being on a diving board. And, you know, when you're looking down from a diving board, it doesn't look that scary, but, or it looks scary, I should say, but then you jump off, you know, like it wasn't nothing once you're, once you're doing it. Yeah. And obviously you have command of the sea, you have command of the water. And so you have your bearings and being on something that's constantly moving, that's very soothing. And also it brings us back to the womb, I suppose. So maybe there's something to that. It's just a, it's a more calming feeling. Well, let's get into you. Your childhood was interesting. I read a little bit about you. It said that you grew up in a cult. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was interesting. I don't know if it was interesting or, or interesting. I haven't figured out the proper way to say that word, but nevertheless, it was both. Um, I was, uh, so basically what happened is my dad got involved in it when he was like in his early, probably like 22, 23, something like that. Kind of was a hippie back in the sixties, early seventies in that era, got involved in a bunch of drugs himself and all that kind of stuff. And this was like, this lady was like a way out of that lifestyle. Like he wanted to clean his act up and all that kind of stuff. And I think she gave him that kind of path or something. 
And then he met my mom and she had to join it too. And basically it was a Christian based cult with a lot of Eastern philosophies. It's a lot about life force. And like when you get sick, it's not the the virus or, or bacteria or whatever. It's like your life force is fucked up because you're not right with God. So it's like Eastern philosophy, but very much backed with Christianity. So Christianity was still, the Bible was still like the, the skeleton of it, but it had these blends of it. And she was a hypocrite. Uh, when she had a heart issue, she got a pacemaker like right away. So, uh, but you know, that's not, you know, so in her case, Dorothea was her name. The only one, one and only Dorothea I ever met in my life. And, uh, apparently in like the late fifties, like she was 80 years old. I remember her 80th birthday when I was younger, you know, so she was already doing it for a long ass time. My dad was in it for like 25 years or some shit. My mom was in it for probably like 20 or something. And, you know, you know, you just get born and raised in it. Did they try to involve you kids in it or was it more kids were seen and not heard or was that? No, no, you, you're, that was it. See, it's a social situation with a leader within a social situation, which was Dorothea, uh, which was the, she was like, she said she was the most enlightened person on planet earth. And that's where that Eastern philosophy meets the, the Christian Western, uh, you know, monotheistic, whatever. Uh, so it was, you know, it was that kind of a blend, but, but yeah, anyways, it was a, it was an interesting situation. I think, uh, <laughs> and when it gives you, gave me, uh, in a, a, a bit of a roller coaster with religion, uh, because you believe real strongly in something and you learned that like as a child growing up, if the, the environment around you, like there's whole nurture versus nature debate, right? How much is who we are as nurture? How much is who we are as nature? But if you do grow up in a situation where your parents, your siblings, the friends, everybody in your network, everybody who's close or even semi-close has, you know, says the same thing. You're probably going to believe that thing. You know, it could be anything like this is a Guinness right here. Oh, you can see it. Oop. I don't know. Drink Guinness. So, you know, if I told you this Guinness was some holy relic of some sort and you grew up with everybody in your family, relatives, siblings, you believe it too. So it's just, I don't know, an aspect of human nature. Uh, it, maybe it's some self-defense mechanism from hunter-gatherer times. I have no idea. But, um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, it, you go through that and you realize that, like, it was lies, probably about the age of 10 years old. Right. So I like we got out of the cold and, it, and the transition was very quick, which was kind of interesting because she went from being this like holy thing. Right. She was like this. The, she like controlled everything. She told my, you know, tell you what books you read, what kind of wallpaper you can have in your house, what kind of car you can drive. Like she was my parents parent, you know, very. And then you get out and she's of course, I was a kid. So I didn't understand that at that level. When I just growing up, you think it's normal. But. Anyway, she went from being a good guy to a bad guy very quickly without very little explanation for the situation. So then, you know, then you probably go, I went through an angry phase or whatever phase. I stopped trusting my parents. You know, I, I lost faith in them probably about 12 or 13 or so, probably about 12. Cause you're like, Oh my God, my, you know, they taught me a bunch of bullshit all this time growing up and this isn't the truth. And how, if they, you know, how can I, and then you don't care what they think. So if you get in trouble, it's not like a thing because like, what are you afraid of? Let's say you're 12 years old, you're 11 years old, you're 13 or 14. You don't want to get in trouble with your parents. At some level, you fear the wrath of your dad or your mom or whatever it is. And you don't want to be involved in that. But if you don't care anymore, 
And so I just stopped caring about a lot of stuff. And then I got locked up a bunch. So when I was 16, by the time I was 16, I've been locked up five times and been to rehab twice. So after the cult thing, I kind of embraced the street life and it was a beginning of adventures and it was unhealthy adventures for the most part, but it was adventures. What do you think it was that brought you into being uh, attracted, let's say, to drugs and alcohol and, and as you put it, the street life? Uh, I guess, I mean, I think drugs and alcohol are harder to nail down than the, the, the street life, so to speak, you know, quote unquote. Uh, I think that the, the, the lifestyle of selling drugs and, and breaking the law and doing a variety of crimes at different ages, they advance from basic things, stealing stuff and, and stealing cars or whatever else into, you know, you can make more money. Once you get into selling drugs, you realize like, why am I stealing this shit? Like, why do I need to do that petty stuff? Like I can make way more money doing this. It's way easier. Like why involve myself with walking into a store and walking out with stuff in my pockets? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. That's an adventure of a sort. Um, and the drug thing, you, I mean, that's why I don't know. How do you define the drugs and alcohol? Do you define that as an adventure, which you could, yeah. you know, there is an adventure within that. I think but, it's an escape, an escape mechanism for sure. Mm-hmm. Were, were you bored or was it a way to get back at your parents? No, I didn't care about getting back at them because I just didn't care about any of that. See, the problem, what happened ultimately, and I'm not saying this is 100% my parents or the cult, or maybe it's it's my nurture, but I stopped, uh, like, I didn't care about myself. You know, like, I didn't have self-esteem. I didn't have self-worth. I didn't see a future for myself tomorrow. I didn't care about myself. I didn't care. You know, I was like, it was a, I guess it's a form of, it's not really depression, because I wasn't like I'm depressed in a, in, a, in the traditional sense of sitting in your room with the lights dark and you're depressed. You don't want to go outside or something like that. It was like a lack of self-worth. And that way, well, if you don't, if you truly don't give a fuck about yourself, then why are you going to give a fuck about anything else? And, and then your parents, you're like, shit, you brought me up in that cult. Like, why am I care if I piss you off? You know, and then it's just like, all right, let's just go. And then you get in the street life and it's selling drugs and all that. And you're just like, let's just go. And then I, I do tend to throw myself into things a hundred percent. So, um, so I did, you know, but of course it catches up to you. I got, like I said, I got locked up five times by the age of 16. So I was in and out of, you know, that's how I grew up in and out of those institutions a bit, you know, and then whatever else, but it wasn't all bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was, um, I wouldn't have picked any other situation growing up. I think it all, all the situations we experience through life help to create the person we are today, which also goes along that nurture nature. It's like, okay, I think part of us, and it's my opinion, whatever people, people think, whatever they like, but I think part of us is passed down through DNA. I think we do have aspects of parents, grandparents, and so on, just kind of baked into us, but definitely the environment you grow up in and how that affects you creates the person you are, you know, simultaneously. Sure. If you're ha- If you're happy with the person you are, then why be unhappy about the past you had? Because the past you had created the person you are and you're happy about that. You know, it's just yeah. a journey. We, we all walk a different path. That is true. Were your parents heavy handed or did they, when you were in the cult still, did they let you just sort of run amok? People I've talked to that have been raised up in cults, the children suffer. They tend to be beaten or sexually abused or ignored. No work or you know there's all these right. aspects so no i got lucky in that one a bit because i think part of it was because the cult was run by a female and not a male there was no weird sexual shit 
You know what I'm saying? Like you hear that a lot with male cult leaders. They take the power trip and they make it a sexual power trip. But she was, like I said, I remember her 80th birthday when I was like 10, like right before we got out, you know? And uh, she was definitely, it, nothing like, but she could mind fuck you. She would like get in your head on some like Jedi mind trick shit and just fucking mind fuck you. So, and she would put people on a hot seat, you know, the normal, there, the hot seat was a thing. There's always somebody getting berated and they would be crying and shit. So you, you know, these meetings you go to as a kid to be like adults crying because she's like laying in, you're too worldly in the eyes of God and you're pissing them off and you're fucking up basically. She didn't say fucking up, but basically. And uh, so that was normal. And then this one lady lived down the road. So they tried to get a commune at one point. Luckily they, they loaned, they couldn't get the loan. Thank God. I was like probably three years old at the time, growing a goddamn commune. But um, they bought a bunch of houses on the same street. And so we lived on this Valley View street and there's a bunch of us on the street. And uh, the lady about three doors down, she had some asthma issues and Dorothea went over and just gave this, went in on this lady about how bad she was in the eyes of God and all this kind of stuff. Lady had an asthma attack and started pulling this whole like, you know, freaking uh, you believe in God, not the, not don't call the ambulance sort of thing. And she ended up dying from this asthma attack. So it, uh, Dorothy would get in your head and she was, and she got off on it. That was her power trip. And she started in the early sixties. And at this point, you're talking about the late eighties, early nineties, this lady been at it for a while. And when it was at its peak in the seventies, there was hundreds of people. And my dad rose up into like a top Lieutenant position. That's why they stayed so long. We got out. There's probably like 12 people. I mean, I remember when there was like 50, 60, but it was, and you know, that saying that tighter you grip more slips to your fingers. That's what she was doing. She got more control and worse as she got older, as she lost more people, she just got worse and worse. And so uh, eventually it got so bad that they got my mom, my uh, dad got out before my mom, actually, about six months before. But then they lose their social structures, which is another situation. Now you're like middle-aged, more or less, and, um, and you lost all your friends. Because all the, you're not allowed to have friends outside the, outside the, uh, they called it group. See, it was called truth fellowship for a long time in the sixties and seventies. Then in the early eighties, she changed the name to group and group is the most nonchalant genius fucking decision. you can imagine for a call leader, because it doesn't sound like shit. I go, oh, it's just group. We're just going to group. That's all it is, is group. And, uh, you know, I got to tip my hat to her for that little piece of marketing strategy because uh, that's what I was referred to ever since when I grew up. That's what it was. You're going to group, you know, but uh, my dad was able to recover. He played the violin and he got into like some Irish rock band playing like the fiddle. He was like the fiddler and they'd go tour around in Ohio and, you know, do all that shit. And so he was able to branch out. My mom was never able to recover. She never recovered. So she became obsessed with uh, being with her family, which is down in Texas. So eventually she left and went to Texas and then, uh, and my dad chased after at some point point. it didn't really work out cause they got divorced anyways. Probably should have got divorced a while before that, you know, probably should have happened some years earlier, but Dorothea was, I think a glue that held that relationship together. You know, they're talking, I don't know how many years, 20 years or something of being married and having her as their parent and living that lifestyle. So fascinating. When you were going to, to jail, did you think, did you have any self-awareness about that? Did you think, oh, maybe I should be not ending up here? Or do you just still was like, I don't care. It's going to play out how it plays out. 
No, I mean, the self-awareness happens slow, at least for me, it happens slowly over time. It takes like decades. <laughs> Some things I get better about. I stopped being angry at religion at the age of probably, I don't know, 18 or 17. Cause there was a while where I was just mad at, I don't know, I was just mad at all that shit. And, um, I mean, I'm not religious at this point, but I feel like I've had an interesting experience with it. I have a lot of respect for religion because it gives a lot of people hope and makes, you know, hard lives feel a little less hard and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, I don't really follow into it. What was your aha moment then? Oh, all right. So the closest, I guess, would be the fourth time I was locked up. I was in this, they got three man cells. They'd actually tore this fucking place down since then and build a nice fancy one. It was kind of old. It had drafty, even though it was windows, you couldn't break through these windows. They're like super bulletproof, but somehow they were still drafty around the seams. Get that. I don't get it. And in the winter time, it was just your cell was cold and it's all concrete. So you had three man cells. All right. Three man cells makes a very odd dynamic because it's usually two against one. That's a very typical situation. It doesn't have to be two against one physical, but it sometimes does. And I, the second time I was locked up with it, I got into a two against one with two guys that are bigger than me and they both ganged up on me and it was hard. It was uh, it made for some hard time for a while there. I got one of them eventually when the other one was gone. But, uh, but then, so anyways, the fourth time, right. I was in there with this kid Smith and nobody calls each other by the first names. It's only I'm Rutherford. He was Smith. Everybody calls each other. I don't know why. I have no idea why people don't call each other by first name, but it's always last name. And so he had a bed, the beds are all numbered. I had a bed. We get out. And like three months later, I get locked up again. I get put back in the same exact cell, cell 42, in the same exact bed. And then like two days later, who walks through the door? Smith in the same cell in the same bed. And I'm like, Smith, dude, we just did this. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, what, what are we doing, man? We just did this. And so, yeah, that was a bit of a thing. So there was a school that uh, in Colorado that's funded by Honda, the motor company. And it's kind of a strange thing in some ways. Uh, Honda Motor Company built a school in Colorado, nice school up in the Rocky Mountains, and they pay for everybody's admission. It's a hundred percent scholarship. Doesn't cost any money to go there. You have to like get in there, and there are about eighty kids in the school. And it's this kind of like it started off as like an at-risk sort of, I don't know, you know, a total alternative education thing. So when I was seventeen. I started going to that school and without like any uh, credits or I had nothing, you know, cause I didn't, I, I dropped out in eighth grade for the first time I dropped out and then I went back a little bit in ninth and 10th, but I really wasn't at school much. So that was the, that was the flip side of my parents. We talked about being strict was that when I got, we got out when I was 10. So I was relatively young and it was more the chaos and the fallout of it that I think affected me in some ways because my parents, their whole world got rocked so hard that I could run amok and they were so busy with their own issues that it was almost, I don't know how I did half the shit I did. I don't, they couldn't stop me either at the same time. Cause like I would have done it anyways, you know, it was just like, so, but, um, but anyways, the school in Colorado, Eagle Rock, Eagle Rock school. Um, when I graduated, only 16% of the kids graduated everybody else they had a very low graduation rate and because it was hard like most people get it's like kind of like a at-risk youth most people get kicked out back then they had this non-negotiables and they had this thing called second chance you had to do a wilderness trip we were out in the wilderness for like 26 days in the mountains wiping your ass with sticks and all that kind of stuff and um 
And I, the first time I did it, I got kicked out. I ain't gonna lie. I had a 10 strip of acid on wilderness, but, um, and I got kicked out. It was ER 12. They have ERs. They have trimesters instead of semesters. So you go like three months on, one month off, three months on, one month off year round. It's a different sort of thing. But anyways, I graduated from that. And before I graduated from that, which I guess brings us kind of around to this thing, is that um, I made three goals when I was 19. I was sitting in the library looking at an atlas. And I saw that, you know, I like to, I want to travel. I want to see the world. I want to experience other cultures, eat other foods, listen to other music. I want to, I want to see the world. So I'm looking through this atlas and I noticed that most of the world is surrounded by the ocean, which is obvious, very obvious thing to notice. But then I thought, well, if I got good at sailing, I could travel to all these different countries and you can drop an anchor for free. You don't need a hotel room. You got your kitchen. You don't need to go out to eat every night. It's a way you can travel relatively inexpensive once you get the boat and get, you know, it doesn't have to be a big boat. But, um, but so I made these goals. Um, I ended up, when I was at Eagle Rock, somehow winning the scholarship to this thing, I don't know what you call it, to build a library in Thailand. And they just made this announcement one morning, they had this gathering in the morning. Every morning at eight o'clock, everybody, the whole little 80 some kids and all the teachers would gather around for like 20 minutes. And the head of school, this guy, Robert Burkhart, would talk for a minute and whatever. It could always be different. And they announced, some teacher announced, well, write this one-page thing, and maybe you can go to Thailand and build a library. Um, you know, everybody tried. Somehow I got it. I don't claim to be a good writer, but I did get it somehow. And, um, and so I went there when I was 18, and I built this library. And it was up in northern Laos over by uh, – uh, northern Thailand over by Laos, this place, Pa Lut, uh, by Uttaradit. Uh, but anyways, uh, I wanted to go back. So I made these goals. One of those goals to bike through Southeast Asia. The other goal was to sail across the Atlantic, either alone or as a captain, whatever. Uh, but I had to be either the captain or alone, like sail my own boat across the Atlantic, you know, not just any boat. And, uh, and the third was to start a nonprofit. So, which that's where my boat is on the hard, my research thing that we started this off me talking about how I'm working on my research boat. That's where that came from. So yeah, so I did bike through Southeast Asia. Many of us have uh, been rabble rousers and run around and, you know, done drugs and skip school and done all the things. And, and when you're in that state of mind, I can only speak from my own experience, but when you're in that state of mind, you think, it's really all about me. You don't necessarily see the outside world as much. So I think that's really interesting that here you are. And one of the things on your list, even though you were in a bit of an egocentric moment, you know, for those years that you thought of something outside of yourself with the nonprofit. I think that's really interesting and cool. Yeah. Well, see those first two goals, there's a reason that it was strategic for it to be the third goal. So biking through Southeast Asia, that took me about a hundred days. I did it alone on a Schwinn and went through Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia. I spent almost all of it Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia. I biked in Thailand a little bit, but it felt like Canada after Cambodia. Beautiful trip. Wonderful, wonderful experience. And then uh, I sailed across the Atlantic in 2008. I did it alone. I sailed a 32-footer alone from the East Coast to uh, England nonstop and then sailed back from West Africa. I spent some time sailing there. Gambia and Senegal and then sailed back over to the Caribbean and back up again. Okay. What did that take me? Well, it was a two year trip with Europe and Africa, the Caribbean, all that. And the third goal in the, is strategic because the nonprofits forever. 
So the first one's 100 days, right? I said 100 days. The other one was like a couple of years. This is like lifetime. So starting a nonprofit is, because once you start it, you got to run it and you never stop running it until you die. So that's, uh, that's how that goes. So that's the third goal is a goal I can always have forever. The second goal was major. You were the only person to have ever done what you did. No, that was a different trip. I uh, did that. I did two trips back. I sailed a boat alone from Annapolis, Maryland to Europe, Africa, the Caribbean and back over two years. did like 15,000. 10 months later, I left on the Alton Vega and sailed, circumnavigated uh, North and South America and uh, single-handed, spent 309 days alone in the ocean. The only person to sail around North and South America, nonstop single-handed, yada, yada. They made yeah. a movie called Red Dot in the Ocean. That's Red Dot in the Ocean. Red Dot in the Ocean, you say? That's what I said. Yeah, that was a trip. That was nice. I'm not, I, uh, we haven't even got to that yet. See, you realize that you want to do something that would last your whole life. So that's, that's, mm-hmm. you wrapped your head around the nonprofit. But at this point, when you made this decision, you're 19. I mm-hmm. think it's really interesting that, that you had that wherewithal, uh, you know, yeah, to yeah. take your picture. To see if what the what your own potential could be is it's a pretty big deal at nineteen, I think. I, I wavered from the past several times in different ways, you know. So it's not like I was able to jump right on it. Like I was twenty one when I did the bike trip through Southeast Asia. I was twenty eight the first time I sailed alone across the Atlantic, which would have been accomplished in that second goal. All the other sailing, sailing back around the Americas, I was all just because I fell in love with sailing. It's, it's, it got in my. I'm like addicted. It's in my blood. It's in my bone marrow. I can't get it out of me. So I'm going to sail till I sink or till I die. I'm gonna, and I'm going to love it doing it. You know, that's, uh, yeah, it happens sometimes. I need these goals to help me f- like focus my life. And it keeps me out of trouble and it keeps me excited, you know, and then you can do these cool adventures. You know, you can do these great expeditions. You can, you know, with the nonprofit, I've, you know, I'm, I'm sailing, I'm taking a boat to Greenland in May. This will be my fifth year sailing in the Arctic, uh, fourth year doing research. The first year was going through around the Americas, as, as we mentioned. I, in order to sail around North and South America, you have to leave out of the Chesapeake Bay, in my case, sail north between Canada and Greenland. You turn left and sail over the top of Canada through the Northwest Passage. You pop out above the state of Alaska. So then you got to sail around the whole North coast, of Alaska, West coast, down the Bering, the entire Bering sea in the fall, by this point, it's damn fall Bering sea's a son of a bitch. I had my boat upside down, that damn giant wave, put my boat upside down in the Bering sea. I lived here. I am. And then you go into the Pacific and sail 10,000 miles down to Cape Horn. You go around Cape Horn. The, you know, one of the worst bodies of water in the world and back up Chesapeake Bay is just that simple folks. And it's 27,077 miles without stopping. Um, so you sail in your sleep, you never anchor, you never tie off to anything. You are always sailing. You're always moving, uh, all the time. And 309 hey, days later, it's over. Mm. I have a couple questions of that. One, mm-hmm. how do you run your boat after it's upside down? And two, how do you navigate through iceberg waters and icy waters when you're sleeping? Well, your boat writes itself. You cannot write your boat. You are helpless. You are inside the boat. I was inside the boat. So you're getting tossed around, right? The boat kind of goes upside down on you and you wind up on the ceiling. And either the boat's going to flip back over again or it's not. But they have a keel on a boat, which is this fin under the boat. And usually a boat, and this is an older school boat. This boat was designed in the 60s by a bunch of Swedish Viking types. I mean, this is a Scandinavian built boat. It's Scandinavian design from the 60s. They weren't playing around. 
So they have something called ballast, which is the weight in the bottom of the fin, which is the keel. So if you got like half of the weight of the entire boat, like four feet down on this fin, so you flip upside down, now you got all this weight way up in the air. It acts as like a pendulum and it swings your boat back around again and it makes you right yourself. So you're inside the boat and you're just hoping that the boat rights itself. In this case, I went 180 over in the same 180 back. So I went upside down and back around. I didn't do 360. I went upside down. I came back around the same way. And, uh, and whatever it did, you know, then you bailed the boat out, the water out with a bucket. Cause you know, you got some water in your boat, you know, did you break any bones or anything doing that? It sounds very dangerous. No, no. I think I cracked a rib in a storm getting near Cape Horn, but that was like 120, 30 days later or something. But yeah, I think I cracked a rib at one point uh, in a storm, but it wasn't, you know, what do you do? There's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, crack rib, even on land, you, there's nothing you do about a crack rib on land. They, you know, so you, whatever, it wasn't that bad. I, you know, I've had it happen before on, you know, how does one face that journey? I mean, did you have to did you just go for it without really any regard for what? I mean, obviously you had to be prepared. You had to have fuel and food and, and whatever, but how do you wrap your head around the fact that you were going to do this trip? Have, I think nobody had ever done it before. And has, has anyone done it since? Are you still the only one that's ever? No. Yeah. Someone will do it again. But yeah, I mean, so. that's, that's a big deal, you know, and mm -hmm. have this one nice. wrap your head around that in preparation. Do, do you just go for it? Yeah. So, I mean, it, there's, there is a, there's aspects to that, right? So part of it is the training aspect of sailing, right? Where you're like, you need to learn how to sail boats alone. And, and that whole Europe, Africa, Caribbean trip I did alone on the 32 foot boat, gave me a lot of knowledge. I did that around the Americas on a 27 foot boat in Alban Vega 27, 1971. It was like 40 freaking years old when I left. But, um, but yeah, so there's the, there's the sort of uh, technique, almost like a, a fighter going into a match in a ring would have to have technique. I'm not trying to compare it directly to a fighter. I'm just saying, or someone playing a violin in an orchestra, they're going to have to have a technique. So you got to learn the technique to do it. But then there's a mental aspect, which is, are you going to have fear? Are you going to be able to deal with the loneliness, the solitude? You know, so there's a couple different like sides to that story and you got to have both. I mean, you got to have the technique to be able to deal with navigation and ice. As you said earlier, I didn't even answer that question. You don't sleep is the answer to that question. You don't sleep for 50. I'll do 50 hours on eight hours off with a tiller in my hand and do that. I lost 30 pounds in the Arctic because it was just, I mean, it was, I didn't have a lot of protection. It's wet too. It's not just cold. It's wet. The fog, a lot of fog, man, with a lot of moisture in it. And it just gets into everything. It gets in your boat. Your sleeping bag is wet. Your pillow is wet. Your ceiling drips like a, like a cave. And every time you lay down, it drips in your eye or your mouth. It's like somehow has some marksmanship and it always seems to be dripping in your eye or your mouth. It's just like, damn. So, and then you're just trying to get some sleep and then you pass out and, and, have vivid dreams, real vivid dreams. When you get sleep deprivation, you get, you get dreams. You'll dream in 10 minutes of sleep or 15 minutes of sleep, like heavy dreams. And then you'll jump out of it sometimes with like half amnesia for a second. You don't know who you are, where you are for like only a few seconds, you know, it only lasts a few seconds, but it's freaky. You're like, what the fuck? And then you're like, you're on a boat and you're like, all right, I'm in a boat. I'm in the Arctic. All right. 
Let me go look to see if I'm going to hit an iceberg. There's freaking icebergs everywhere. I watched the Red Dot movie and mm -hmm. it's great. And the, the imagery is beautiful. Assuming I, you were by yourself, you took all those photographs. Yeah. yeah, I had an audio log too. So when I put the boat upside down, it broke my video camera. So if you notice watching that movie in the beginning, you see me sitting there on the boat talking and all of a sudden that disappears because when the boat went upside down, the damn camera broke. So I didn't have a camera no more. I only had one little camera. And because uh, I didn't, I wasn't about making a documentary. That's not why I did it. I didn't think that was, I didn't even know if I was going to make it through the Arctic. Like, how did I know if I make it around Cape Horn? Cape Horn is terrible freaking storms. And then back. So you just play it. But, but I think the mentality of the situation was one where, um, of course, I, I had to accept the fact that I might drown. I had to accept the fact, you know, I kind of gave myself a 50-50 chance, maybe 51%. You know, half was glad that the glass was half full. It was not half empty, but it was right around 50-50. But, um, you know, I think that once you can accept that, that, that I really should foreshadow this with the, the, the whole concept that I'm kind of obsessed with the explorers like Shackleton and Amundsen and Scott and and what it was to be an explorer and what it was to be like a man of that time and all that kind of stuff and you know there's the there's an aspect of like just being brave and being kind of stiff upper lipid as the english would say and um i read Shackleton adventure i think it's one of the best books i've ever read it's certainly in the top 50 of all my books and i'm a big reader and i was absolutely blown away by that by what he was able to accomplish, how nobody died. It's incredible. So, yeah. So I'm going into that sailing trip a little bit with that mentality of like, what would the explorers think? Like how, so there's other sailors too. Robin Knox Johnson in 1968 is the first person to sail alone around the world, nonstop single-handed. They didn't know if it could be done. Could you, I mean, not like the route, just mentally, like could people hack that? And he was out there just like three days longer than I was. So the trip around the Americas and the trip around the world, nonstop single-handed, is about the same distance, roughly. Uh, so it, and then Bernard Moltissier was in the same race, and he was like, he didn't want to see the cameras. He loved the ocean too much, so he did it one and a half times alone around the world. And then he stopped like a tiny atoll in like Fiji back in the late 60s, you know, when it was still a little more remote. But uh, those are also heroes. So if you blend like Shackleton with Bernard Moltissier, uh, and then that's, you know, it, how do I know how I stand compared to my heroes? And now I, I'm not trying to say I can fill their shoes or anything like that. But at the same time, the only way I can know is to do something like they did at some level. And so it was, uh, I was really inspired by some of the original long distance single-handed sailors like Knox Johnson and Matisse and also like Shackleton and Amundsen. And, you know, Scott had some great guys with him. He died, but he had, he had some great guys with him. Tom Crean, absolutely Cherry Garrard. So, you know, I, um, I was pumped to do that trip. I felt like I was excited. You know, I was excited to going in the Northwest Passage up in the Arctic, surrounded by ice. I felt like I was a kid in Disneyland, like a little kid in Disneyland. I was like walking with the explorers, you know? And yeah, I was cold. I was wet. I was tired. I was hungry, but you know what? complaining about it and being upset about it was not going to give me like a hot slice of pizza and a hot shower and a beer. It wasn't well, going to do nothing. So I, I flipped the mentality and was just made it like an awesome time 
and I just loved it. And it was hard as hell, but at the same time, because of my inspiration, having that inspiration of the explorers and the old school sailors, they, uh, and that was my mentality the whole trip. You know, I was, I was walking with, walking with my heroes or sailing with my heroes, however you want to look at it. And, uh, and so I kind of became one with them. And, and I also became one with the ocean because when I sailed alone across the Atlantic, 2008, right? I sailed back 2010 from Africa, Caribbean, like I said earlier, I had 34 days alone the first time, 28 days alone the second time. Both times I was a visitor. Both times I was out there a few weeks, three, four weeks, but I was still a visitor. When I went around the Americas, I was out there 309 days. I wasn't a visitor anymore. That was my home now. Land was not my home. The ocean was my home. That was my mentality. I don't want land. I don't want to see land. I was in the middle of the ocean. I'd be a thousand miles from land a lot of that trip. I was way out in the middle of the, at one point I was 200 miles closer to New Zealand than I was the bottom of South America. Cause I mean, I was just out in the middle of Pacific cause it gave me away from that shit. That's my home. Now my home is the ocean. You know, the wind is, is my right arm and my sails are my left arm. And this is just, this is where I'm at. And if you embrace it completely, then, and, and also it, I think loneliness and how we think of loneliness uh, is based on our experiences on land. So when you're lonely on land, you're like, why don't I have friends? Why doesn't anybody want to be around me? Or why doesn't anybody want to talk to me? It's emotional. It's an emotional form of loneliness. And that's hard, man. That's, that's a real hard form of loneliness. When you're alone in the ocean, there is no one to talk to. There is no emotion involved in it in that sense. You're just like, well, yeah, I'm alone because there's no one out here. Cause you know, so it's, it's just mental. It's not emotional. So the, the solitude, it's like the difference between loneliness and solitude. You can even break it down like that way. You know, solitude is just mental and loneliness is emotional. So yeah, you miss having conversations. You miss talking to people. You miss doing a lot of, you know, interactions, but it's not a, it's not an emotional situation. If anything, being alone in the ocean is the opposite of that, where a lot of emotion tends to disappear and you kind of just get like Zen and you just become like one with your environment and your emotions just flow in a much calmer kind of path. What's something that you didn't know about yourself that you realized on these ex expeditions? It takes a while to, for, for you to, for me, at least, right. For me, it takes a while to realize, um, the nature of myself or whatever and how we grow and change over time through the experiences that we have and so on. And so I don't think that I would come out of a trip like trip around the Americas immediately. I can't look at it. Like I'm looking at, you know, the aerial view, the aerial view comes from time and retro, you know, reflecting on the past and retrospect and all that kind of stuff. And, and the moment you're down there on ground level, you just can't, you can't see the, the, how you're changing or what the experiences that you've had are changing you outside of the fact. I mean, I, I mean, I know the obvious, right. You come back from something like that and you're like a ball of fire. Cause you're like, you've accomplished this thing. So you're like, all right, now let's do goal number three, start this nonprofit. I started it immediately when I got back, you know, I, well, I got back in April. I had a 501 C three by August 24th of that year. And it takes months for the IRS to approve a nonprofit and give you 501 C three. So I started it like right when I got back. And so it did give me the confidence um, and the sort of uh, momentum, you know, to be able to, to, to take that path and create the organization, Ocean Research Project. That's oceanresearchproject.org. 
it's it's what it sounds like you when you put your mind to something you get hyper focused you achieve it um but you knew that about yourself right you almost died i assume a few times on this journey there's just these things that, that test the spirit for lack of a better word but even with all of that i think i think stuff like that it, it must show you a part of yourself that you didn't even know existed yeah, maybe I'm trying to create a part of myself that I want to exist. You know, I think that's what I'm doing. I think I want to be a version of myself and I'm trying to create that version. And 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 that's sort of the goal. And it's like a never there is no like top stair, you know what I'm saying? The staircase goes on forever. There is no end game here. Like you can only you'll never get there. You'll never, you'll, I'll never get there. I should say maybe someone else will, but, but that's fine. It's like you, I'm a work in progress and I'm just trying to, trying to, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know how, how you or how I am supposed to look back at everything. I mean, there's all sorts of shit we haven't even talked about that's, that's through all this. I mean, there's crazy stuff's happened since I started nonprofit. We've done a bunch of expeditions. I've almost died more times doing scientific research and going around the Americas. And then there's all that street shit before and then all that other stuff after. And it's just, so you just, um, you know, there's basic saying stuff where it's like, the more you realize, the less, you know, I think humble is good, man. We got to remain humble. And I, I try to remain humble and I try to be thankful, you know, and just kind of that basic shit day to day, enjoy my meals, enjoy just the a hot shower. I tell you every time I take a hot shower, I love a hot shower. I love a hot shower and, um, just, yeah, I, but I don't know. I, you know, in some ways, I, I mean, I know who I am, but you know, there's, there's, there's aspects of me probably inside of me that I haven't even like found yet. You know, I'm still, I'm still working at it, but I'm 40 years old. I got, I got time. Maybe, maybe I don't, you know, we all, no one knows, you know, you're not promised tomorrow, but mm -hmm. I feel good. I'm healthy. I feel pretty good. So, uh, and I got this uh, giant research. You know, we had a 42-foot steel schooner. We were up in the Arctic in 2015 and 16 working with NASA, mapping these uncharted regions, looking for this warmer, saltier water column that's eating glaciers from underneath, which we found a bunch. We published two scientific papers with, with these NASA scientists. Um, and now we got this boat that's way bigger, way more capable. You know, that was 42. This is 72. And... Um, we spent 2013 to 14 doing um, microplastics, you know, a lot of plastic trash in the ocean. So I, I spent 70 days mapping out the eastern side of the North Atlantic garbage patch. Found an abandoned ship out there worth like two, three hundred, probably worth like three hundred thousand. Try to tow it back. Almost died with that. That that's a long story. That's like a whole freaking podcast by itself. Um, although here's me pitch something. If you go on YouTube and look up 2016 Greenland uh, climate project phase one through four is phase three. I actually have a GoPro on my head going through this abandoned ship and, uh, seeing know, there's like bodies in it. I don't know. I was freaked out. Honestly, my mouth's shaking a bit. You can see the footage. I was actually, I get scared, man. I'm not fearless. You know, this ain't about this over here ain't about being fearless. You know, it's everybody who's sane is afraid of things. I'm afraid of things too. What it's about is it's about learning to control fear. If you don't learn to control fear, fear will control you. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta, and you have to take risks, you know, reward lives in the house of risk. 
So you got to take risk. Now you got to also understand like me leaving on a trip around the Americas that risk might get you before you get reward. It's the house of risk. It ain't the house of reward, you know? So that's, you gotta, you gotta accept that. You gotta accept it going into it, you know? And, and, but if you, if you feel uh, empowered by the spirit of Shackleton, like I did my inner Shackleton, I would literally call it that. I'd be like, man, my inner Shackleton is on fire, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Able to bring that ship back to its to its owners, they abandoned it because they they couldn't get the engine started. No, we weren't able to. It was, like I said, it's a bit of a. I could try to compress it into a very short, narrow thing. Uh, so we went to the eastern side of the North Atlantic garbage patch. Me and a scientist, Nicole. Some people listening may not know what that that so is. There is a garbage patch. When you hear about the ocean garbage patch, whatever, you're probably hearing about the Pacific. There are five of them. There are five gyres in our Earth's ocean. A gyre is a large area of circular current with sort of like a vortex in the middle. Often these vortexes are associated with a high pressure system, which means there's no wind. It's like a doldrum. If you imagine the center of a giant vortex with a doldrum combined, uh, more or less, you know, and uh, so trash accumulates in these garbage patch regions. The North Pacific is the best uh, researched, most famous and the biggest. It's they say like two Texases or whatever. There is no such thing as an island of garbage in the ocean that does not exist. It is more like soup. So it's may, way harder. If it was an island, it would be easier. We could take freighters, we could clean it up, yada, yada. When it's like soup and it's the size of your fingernail or smaller, most of it, the big plastic is broken up by the wave action into little plastic. So instead of these, these garbage patches are more like giant areas of plastic soup, uh, way, way, way harder to deal with. So anyways, uh, the North Atlantic between the United States and Europe also has one of these garbage patches, which is the second biggest on earth. And it's pretty goddamn big. The Eastern side of it, the side that's closer to Europe and Africa and so on, uh, had not been mapped out. So the first project for my nonprofit, uh, ocean research project that I created. So what happened was I was sailing around the Americas and I was trolling right out out of two different lines off the back of my boat with different lures. And, and I would, I I didn't do very good. I ain't gonna lie, but I was trying to catch some fish. And oftentimes, uh, it'd be like late at night. Let's say it's like, not that late. Let's say five or six o'clock, right? I'm living off of freeze dried food. If you wonder what I ate for 309 days, I had 700 pounds of freeze dry food and I had a manual water maker. You had to pump. I take about an hour and a half to make a gallon and you just sit there and pumping and pumping and pumping. And so it's like six o'clock, right? You've been out in the ocean for like 200 flipping days. And you're like, I don't, I don't really feel like breaking up the water maker. I don't really feel like eating freeze dried food again for like the third time today for the three, 200th day. And then you hear your reel on that fishing rod, right? Start the buzz. And you're thinking, mm, I'm going to get some fresh fish tonight. And you go out there and you pick up that reel. You start reeling it in and it's heavy. It's heavy, but it's not really fighting, but it's heavy. You're optimistic. And then you get it to the boat and it's a plastic trash bag or a plastic piece of whatever, plastic thing, a frame, a boot, I mean, whatever you could think of. I caught, for every fish I caught, I caught 10 pieces of plastic. It was 10 to one. So it pissed me off. And I was, I was tired of seeing trash out there. I saw trash out there all damn time. And especially I went through some of these garbage patch areas going around the Americas and the South South America, South Atlantic has one that I went through. I hit a damn refrigerator. 
refrigerator floating around refrigerator. All that uh, foam in the refrigerator must make it buoyant. I don't know, but it damn thing for hit a refrigerator. So I came back and the first thing I want to do is was research. I wanted to map out the regions of these garbage patches. Nobody had gotten to yet because I thought it'd be the most significant uh, contribution to the science within that particular problem. And so Nicole, the scientist, found out what regions had not been mapped. I didn't figure it out. She did. She read a bunch of papers, scientific papers, and it was like, all right, these are the regions we got to hit. So in 2013, we did that. Uh, so we've been in the ocean for 47 days nonstop at this point. We mapped out 2,600 miles. We drew a giant W basically for Wu-Tang, 2,600 miles in the eastern side and figured out how much they want to know how many uh, pieces per square kilometer, which is about 120,000, by the way, is about 120,000 pieces per square kilometer. And, um, so anyways, we packed up our shit on the day 45 and now we're heading towards Bermuda, which is thousands of miles away. And um, we um, are having dinner on the back of the boat. It's a nice night, a little bit of wind, sailing along peacefully. And Nicole looks out and says, I think I see a boat. And I'm like, I'm looking, I can't really see it. I'm like, I, I don't see a boat. And then I'm looking harder. I'm like, oh, I think I see it too. So we had ran out of alcohol like a long time before this. So I was like, maybe we can go by and bum a bottle of wine or something. Like, I'm going to try to go by and radio this boat, this sailboat, see if they'll give us some booze, basically. And um, so we turned off and we got closer and closer and then it looked weirder and weirder. And then you realize it's an abandoned sailboat and it was a Swan 48, a newer Swan 48. It was a nice, fancy ass boat. But uh, we tried to tow it. We ended up, we didn't have enough fuel, man. We've used, cause they, I told you these garbage patches are associated with doldrums. So we had to bring all this extra fuel to, to, to map it. You, you collect these samples with these nets, these surface, they call them manta nets. And, uh, so we had no fuel left really. We, we, we commenced a freighter, big old tanker going by to give us some diesel. They didn't want to do it at first. And then they saw us towing this boat and they're like, they turned around and we came up right next to them. And this boat towers over us for the steel thing, like some thousands of foot long boat. And they said, they're going to give us 10 gallons. And then they saw Nicole and they gave us 50. And, um, it was, they lowered down a rope, lowered down jugs. And anyways, the fuel ended up being bad and it broke our engine. And so now we had no engine. They tried, it wasn't their fault. I mean, whatever they see, you see, freighters run off of something called bunker they don't run off of diesel they have diesel to start their auxiliary generators but i don't know how long that diesel has been sitting in the tank because how often do you start your auxiliary they're auxiliary they're auxiliary for a reason so yeah so that happened so now my engine's broken i'm towing a boat with a broken rig so you can't sail the thing it had a broken engine you can't motor the thing but it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars you're 800 miles from bermuda your engine is broke and my boat didn't have a very good sail plan. It really was a motor sailor. And so you're barely making any, you know, making 30 miles a day and stuff. And then this, this storm came and the whole, there's a whole nother like chapter to this story where I almost drowned. But um, yeah. So after five days of towing it, you just huh? have, see, so you just abandon it then I guess when, after five days of towing it, we abandoned it, and then we lost the wind completely, and we had a broken engine, and 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 
no wind. So we've drifted like for 23 days straight, just drifted in the most flat, calm swimming pool like conditions in the middle of the damn ocean, which is just crazy. You're out there freaking in the middle of nowhere and you're, it's like a swim pool and there's shit floating around the boat once in a while. And it was like one day it's over here. The next day it's on the other side of the boat. The next day it's behind the boat. The other day it's in forward of the boat. You're like becoming, I'm becoming a giant piece of floating trash basically. You know, I'm, I'm becoming one with the, with the trash. And, uh, but eventually I was able to get the boat to Bermuda after we were out there 70 days, that whole thing went down on day 46 and it was not until day 70, we towed it till day 51. And then it took till day 70 for me to get us to Bermuda. We almost ran out of water, but, um, but then I fixed the engine in Bermuda. I got a new injector pump and and in 2014, we sailed a, a 29-foot day sailor because that's all we get our hands on from San Francisco to Yokohama, Japan, nonstop. That was a 64-day trip um, mapping out. Really, what we were trying to understand at that point was how the uh, dominant easterly trade winds and currents that kind of go around Hawaii, kind of north of Hawaii and south of Hawaii, how they are taking the garbage that's in this big, giant Pacific garbage patch, as I said, the largest garbage patch, and transporting some of that garbage to different parts of our ocean. It's like a conveyor belt on the south side of the garbage patch. And obviously garbage is gonna drift into it and it's gonna get taken other places. So we were trying to go in and out of the garbage patch through that current, taking samples, understand that. We ended up publishing a paper with the University of Tokyo uh, with some scientists at the University of Tokyo. And um, it took like three years to get that paper out. Sometimes these papers take forever, but um, and then after that, we've been up in the Arctic doing climate stuff. Like I said, we work with NASA 2015-16. We're back up there in 2018 in the Northwest Passage. We're going to be back there this year. We're mapping some the last uncharted parts of Greenland, working with something called Seabed 2030. And uh, we're doing a bunch of glacier research. Basically, so we, we've done some kind of glacier research in the past. We're talking about that warmer, saltier water column, eating the glaciers from underneath. But... The glaciers create these nutrient plumes, these sediment plumes, and there's nutrients in the sediment. And there's plankton needs these nutrients to have big giant plankton blooms. So if too many glaciers become land fast, which just means they're on land, they don't have an ice shelf. They're basically dying. If a glacier is on land and not in the water or have like a lip that goes out into the water, it's a dying glacier at that point. It doesn't create that same sediment plume. So how uh, are the retreating glaciers going to affect the amount of plankton in the Arctic? And that's another thing we're doing while we're up there, while we're mapping. It's basically, it's a lot easier to get money to map the seafloor than it is to do all this climate research, which seems kind of backwards maybe, but it's, you, if you do any research related to climate change, it's still really hard to get funding. <laughs> I don't know. I knew under the last administration why that might be, I would have thought things might have changed under the current administration, but they haven't seen to. So maybe they're busy with the pandemic. I, I don't. Have you seen the movie Don't Look Up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was reading a lot of the client, climate scientists are saying how realistic it is because they have tried. They've been screaming for years that we need to do something and they just get ignored and it all gets politicized. There's nothing to politicize. The planet is dying. <laughs> Everything gets politicized now, though. And you, UFOs can invade tomorrow, and somehow it would be some liberal versus conservative freaking thing. I know. So, yeah, it's just, um, 
I would have loved, though, I ain't going to lie, I would have loved for Al Gore to go out on stage with that inconvenient truth with a prominent Republican by his side. Maybe that would have helped. Maybe not. You know, I don't know. But it, it definitely, that's a nice thing about plastic trash in the ocean, if there is anything nice about it. And that is that it's not politicized. If I, I can go to yacht clubs, which can go left or right, and I've done a lot of talks. I've done talks at yacht clubs all over, sailing clubs. I've done talks at also, I've done hundreds of talks at this point. And I can talk about plastic trash in the ocean. It doesn't matter what your political background is. You can see that bottle, you know, that Coke bottle or something floating in the ocean. And you can realize that that sucks. And there's nothing about it. climate. It's like you got to like think about your audience. You know, if I like I'm doing those, those sailing trips and I'm coming back and talking to yacht clubs and sailing clubs and whatever. And I'm I got to think like, OK, how can I talk about this without saying in a way that's going to turn people away from it? Because. You know, that, there's probably no point, in my mind at least, to preach into the choir about the issue. Like, there's already people who believe that, that climate change is a problem or potentially catastrophic and that man has something to do with it. And we don't really need to worry about those people. And then there's other people who are on the fence about it. And then there's other people who just will never be convinced. But the people who are on the fence about it, I don't think giving them, like, you know, I think it's probably like a lesson in psychology. Like how do you talk to somebody about an issue and have them come up with a new opinion about it, thinking that they were the ones yeah. who created the opinion and it wasn't you putting your opinion on them. Right. It was, they had the light bulb moment. So, and I think you got to be gentle a little bit, but you got to be, I don't know, you know, it, it, maybe it's person to person. Maybe it's extremely difficult because we're all unique individuals, but, um, Ego and greed and power are tricky things to navigate for sure. But as you, but when you're talking about this, the truth of the matter is it's not even maybe the giant refrigerators and giant pieces of plastic is the little particulates, right? There's tiny, tiny pieces, millions mm -hmm. and millions and millions of tiny, tiny pieces. The fish eat them. They're, it's in our bodies now, right? They say that now well, we- Well, it gets way worse than what I said. Yeah, that's only, that is the sort of tip of the you know proverbial iceberg. The- if you want to get into another issue of plastics and that we're ingesting every day, we eat a credit card worth of, worth of plastic a year. That's not the plastic trash in the ocean. So it's, it's microfibers. I like, I love fleece, but every time you wash it, you lose something like 50 to 60 to a hundred thousand of these microfibers. They get past the filtration systems and they're in everything. They're finding it in beer. You go buy a beer. They're finding it in your beer. They're finding it in, in, in everything. So it actually can get picked up by the, I don't when, with, with uh, moisture into the clouds and it can actually come down as snow on top of mountains and glaciers. They found it on top of mountains and stuff. So, and we have found it in every single sample we have done in the Arctic. We have been looking for that stuff since 2000. So obviously we go up the Arctic, we're doing all this climate related research, but we're still doing plastic stuff. We can't just stop. So we're pulling out trawls. We're doing, we started with microplastics 2015 um, there's not a lot in Baffin Bay, which is good. I think we, we found that, that not too much is getting up there, which is, which is good. But, um, when we switched to doing the microfibers, looking at the microscopic stuff and it's everywhere, it's, it, it's like, oh shit. Yeah. This stuff is so, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. We're, we're an interesting species in, in the way that we deal with our resources and our waste. And we tend to be a bit hard headed about things, you know? <laughs> eventually we'll, I don't know. I hate that. I hate to be pessimistic and think that like, 
we're not going to learn our lesson until the bottom falls out. And then we're going to be like, oh, damn, we should have done something about it. But now it's too late. But we are pretty hard headed. I mean, you know, we're. I, I think I, I'm with you. It's it's a real bummer that humans, we're not a very old species and we're going to off ourselves even before we get the chance to really see what our potential is, which is a shame. You know? Yeah, you never know. We might have like a dark age and come back again. We've had that happen before. I guess. Great extinctions on the planet, but. Well, even in the evolution of us, if you look at it from like the, the Sumerians, like you wanna, if you want to start with the first, the first cities, you know, Ur and and all the, the ancient Sumerian times. Everything flourished and flourished and flourished. 1200 BC, you had the Bronze Age collapse. The Bronze Age collapse affected for like a thousand years. It screwed everything up. Evolution of our species technologies and culture went to a screeching halt and backwards. After the Roman Empire, we had another dark age. It wasn't as long, but you know, it's possible that in the future we might screw things up bad enough that we end up having to take a few steps backwards. And who knows how we step forward again Hopefully not in some like one of those crazy, uh, what was that movie? 1986, 85? Was that? 1984. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully it's not like that, you know, where they're like, you humans need to be controlled because you guys can't control yourself. So we're going to control you, you know, but. Um, Just reread that book last week. You know what I think, man? We need to stop fighting each other and try to figure out how to explore outer space. And I know that's a long way off. Because where technology is like nowhere near good enough yet. Take all the money we spend on military and just be like, look, your country's your country, my country's my country. Let's just not evade each other anymore. And just like kind of like try to agree to disagree. Like you be that religion, I'll be this one. Like, all right, cool. And then let's take all that money and build like spaceships or something. Well, I think we need to fix the problems at home first, funding the research and getting the... Well, that's true, of course. You know, yeah. get the water's clean and trying to figure that all, you know, feeding our people and educating our people. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We need to figure that out. I, if, if aliens landed tomorrow and said, do you want to come with us? I will. I'm on that ship and I'm gone. Trust me. I'm Space is my jam. But... Yeah. I do believe that we have uh, plenty of work to do here first. Well, we got to change. We got to change some things. If, if, and I don't know how population increase or where population increase is going to stop, whether it's 9 million, 11 million, 14 million. Like I've heard all sorts of different estimates of it. But if we had, let's say, I'm sorry, billion. Yeah. If we had like 14 billion or 15 billion or something like that, we, we'd have to change the way we interact with our resources and our waste. We have to, we'd have to make fundamental changes or else you're going to have wars over water and you're going to have oh that's coming so, that's coming yeah well that's well, it, but it, unless we have some fundamental changes which which probably can't happen quickly either we probably have to slowly but not too slowly it's yeah. like slow but not too slow and i don't know probably ain't gonna happen i'm i'm you know maybe i'm being optimistic now but, when uh, water rights start being purchased up uh then by corporations and things and you know that that some dangerous stuff is on the horizon i and i don't think this planet could ha handle uh, the, the way we are with things the way that we don't share our resources and um i don't think 14 billion is sustainable but as currently yeah. <laughs> there are many countries that are starting to see declines because i think the youth are deciding not to have children they're realizing that there's some right fixed first so it's it's going to be some interesting stuff well what's on the horizon for you what's coming next well i got to get this boat finished so this boat was built in the year 2000 by a guy named howdy bailey and howdy bailey built a bunch of boats he was kind of legendary in the chesapeake bay he was in norfolk 
Norfolk is the home of the Atlantic fleet, which is the home of the Navy, basically, uh, for the Atlantic. So they have all these welders down there that weld aircraft carriers, destroyers, submarines. And when they wanted some overtime, they'd go work for Howdy Bailey building steel sailboats. So uh, this 72-foot steel sailboat uh, was welded up by Navy welders, basically, in Norfolk. The um, it's, uh, it's really everything we could have dreamed of as a research vessel. Um, so I, I haven't really gave that pitch, but it's not very long. Um, what I'm trying to do here outside of doing a bunch of research, right? The kind of bigger picture scenario is that your average research vessel is about $25,000 a day up in the Arctic. It can be 35, $40,000 a day. They can burn between two and 3000 gallons of diesel a day. Um, a sailboat research platform is less than 10% of the cost with less than 1% of the fossil fuels. And because the technologies needed to do scientific research have gotten smaller and less power hungry, just like your phone, you know, computers, and you just take up rooms and now we got a computer in our phone stronger than the, you know, the biggest computer back in the day. Uh, same thing happened with science equipment. So we could do research on a sailboat today that we never could have done 20 years ago. Imagine 20 years from now, in particular, when you integrate the fully autonomous aerial and underwater data collecting robots, which are playing a larger and larger role. You got drones in the air doing science. You got underwater, they call them gliders. They look like Tomahawk cruise missiles kind of. They can go for two to three weeks underwater nonstop on a mission and collect all sorts of data. You like pre-program them and then they pop up and you go collect them. So I believe that a sailboat which has been largely relegated to pleasure craft. You had the steam engine, the combustion engine, and sailboats have basically been pleasure craft ever since. And I believe that they have a place in the professional world as cost-effective, environmentally friendly data collection platforms. And as these technologies get better and better, which they will, sailboats are only gonna be more and more capable. And in particular, when you got a boat that's 72 feet, it has, you know, I can house 10 uh, crew, I can have a half dozen scientists, I can have all sorts of equipment and gear, and we can operate for very long periods of time. And the nice thing is the guy who built the boat never finished the boat. He never built the interior. He didn't do a whole bunch of stuff. So I've spent the last two and a half years building this thing out. And I've been able to kind of create it into my ideal dream boat slash research vessel slash Arctic, you know, machine, basically. I got a lot of heating systems and a pilot house. Ain't nobody getting cold and wet on this boat. No more. I got a shower. I got a sauna. I got a sauna in my shower room. All right. I, it's going to be good. So I've learned my lessons. And uh, and that's what happens with age. I'm 40 years old now. You know, I went around the Americas. I was 30. You know, it's 28 when I, when I did that uh, first single-handed. I was 21 when I like bike through Southeast Asia. So, you know, it's, it's a progression in life. You try to work your way up. It's all hard work. It's all dedication, determination, perseverance, but, uh, but, you know, hopefully, you know, if you work hard enough at something, you can build something and uh, I'm not going nowhere. You know, that third goal, like I said earlier, that's a goal for life and I'm only getting bigger boats. I'm only trying to do bigger things. I got half million dollars of scientific equipment for this. I'm, just our multi-beam sonar is $300,000. Now 
Now we don't got the money to buy it. We're borrowing it, but I don't care. We got it. We got it for this year. And we're going to go map a whole bunch of uncharted areas and do a whole bunch of research with glaciers connected to plankton health. And, um, and it's, it's like, it's not as close as you can get to old school exploration. Cause when you're mapping these uncharted areas, you don't know where the rocks are. You're like, you don't know where anything is. You don't know your weather forecasts are garbage. There's ice all over the place. Polar bears will eat your head. You know I mean? It's just like, you're just, and, and it's, it's just, there's something I love about that. Like I love being out there in that, and that, and, and uh, that's the healthy adventure of the present day. You know, the unhealthy adventure of the past that I was always searching for that I was always, uh, you know, I, I just try to find a way to tweak it. So, you know, so it becomes something that's sustainable too. I mean, let's be honest, man, nobody retires from selling drugs. Like Tony Montana did not retire at the end of Scarface on like a beach in, in Miami, he got shot, you know, I mean, that's what happens or, or you go to prison. Like, it's just, so, you know, and I'm not saying I want to retire as a sailor. That's another beautiful thing. I will never get tired of this. So I don't need to retire. Cause I, if I retired, I'd want to go sailing and I'm already going sailing. I'm already doing what I want to do. If I was retired more, I mean, there's no money in it. Don't get me wrong. Running. If you work for a nonprofit, there's somebody above you who cuts you a check. If you start a nonprofit, there's nobody above you to give you a check. I haven't been paid salary in 10 years as a nonprofit. So I worked as a yacht broker. I do a lot of boat deliveries. I sail boats back and forth to the Caribbean uh, in the summer. I'm sorry, the fall and in the spring on, the, on either side of hurricane season. You know, they go down after hurricane season. They come up before hurricane season. And I do a lot of talks. I mean, you don't get paid huge money for that either, but you get a little money. So, you know, it's like you, you figure out other ways to make money. But luckily, with the, the way we're going with this organization, with this new boat, the Seabed 2030, and, and things are really ramping up, like there's going to be a salary soon. Like I quit being a yacht broker a couple months ago. I'm going to sell no damn boats. I want to sail boats. I, I like doing the delivery, so don't get me wrong, because uh, they're usually really nice boats. You have to be pretty wealthy uh, to pay someone, because it's like costs you like 10000 bucks to get your boat delivered to the Caribbean. So, I mean, it's not cheap. And then put 10000 back up. You spend twenty grand getting your boat back and forth. So they're typically nice boats that I couldn't afford anyway. So you get to sail a whole bunch of nice boats, like, uh, you know, 1500 miles offshore and which you get a good feel for them. You know, it's like you get to stretch their legs and kind of take them out around the block, you know. Since you were out for so long by yourself, did you, I would be remiss to not ask this question. Did you see anything out in the middle of nowhere that uh, out in the skies? I have to ask the UFO question. Did you see anything weird? Or? You see some weird stuff sometimes. I ain't gonna lie. Like once in a while you see some weird things. You don't, I mean, I've never had one just roll up right over my head. You know what I'm saying? But I've seen lights that I don't understand. Uh, but I'm not saying they're like up in the stars necessarily either. Like I've seen lights near the horizon. I don't get, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you definitely, sometimes there's some weird shit happens out there, but you know, for the most part, I think that some of that, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what a UFO would be doing really out in the middle of the ocean. Like if, imagine you and I were in a UFO, right? And, and we came to some other planet. Okay. And there's life on that planet. There's like cities and stuff. I imagine we would like go towards the lights and be like the cities. Maybe. I wouldn't be like, let's go out in the middle of the ocean. You said research, right? If you were an alien species, yeah. Do well, they could have been on like they could have been on you know they could be going from one continent to the next and they just notice me. They'd be like, hey, we got something on our like radar down there. Let's go check that shit out. 
I, you know, the funny thing about the, the UFO abduction kind of fantasy thing is everybody hopes that it would be like some intelligent creature that wants to have a conversation with you somehow. And it's always ends up being like the being tortured with some probe in bad places. And yeah. 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 I don't know what to think about aliens. I, I think that there has to be intelligent life out there because there's just <laughs> too many stars and planets and galaxies. I mean, it, it, the number is mind boggling. Like the, the, the hundreds of billions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars each kind of thing. It's just like, you can't even wrap your mind. You can't even begin. And in the middle of the ocean, you can see the Milky Way on a, on a moonless night with no clouds. You can look up and see the Milky Way. The stars are just unbelievable out there. And so how can you not stare at that and just think like, holy, this is, that's like your place in the universe. You can like look up and see your place in the universe and just be like, and there is an insignificance. There's a beauty. There's a, there's like an awe that it's just powerful, but yeah, there's gotta be life. Time is a weird one though. Cause that idea like that James Webb is about to be up soon. And they talk about looking back through time. It can like see because of the, the light only travels so fast. And, and then it makes me wonder like, well, how does time come in the equation of, of aliens to space travel? You know, it, it's like, because things move relatively slowly. I mean, light moves relatively slowly in comparison to the size of the universe. If it can take billions of years for light to get across the universe from one galaxy to another galaxy, it ain't moving. I mean, it's moving fast to you and me, but it ain't moving fast to the overall scale of the galaxy or the universe. So, and how would an alien even know, like, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, I just feel like you'd have to be able to bend some kind of space time, like wormholes or something. We've created an idea of time, but I don't know that, uh, that time is, we, right? We've, we have created a lunar cycle. That is what we have created. We've created an if, understanding of a lunar cycle. <laughs> if the sun exploded, let's just say, it would be... Eight minutes. Eight minutes, yeah, before we even happened, yeah. which is so bizarre. It's so I told you, it's slow, man. Light is slow. It yeah. takes eight, eight minutes? Really? Eight minutes? Light is slow, man. This guy, what if there's something faster than light we just haven't found yet? Oh, I'm you sure. Know? I mean, yeah. We can see light. Obviously, light lets us see. I mean, so it's like such a part of our every day. But, but uh, there's got to be something faster than light. Faster than the speed of light. Well, that's what the aliens got to bring us, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Tell people how they can find you easily. Uh, so my podcast is a single-handed sailing podcast, but the Ocean Research Project is the name of the nonprofit, uh, oceanresearchproject.org is where you find a website and there's some Facebook thing out there. I don't do much with it, but it exists. And then Red Dot in the Ocean is the film they made about that nonstop single-handed circumnavigation that we talked about earlier. You can find that on Amazon Prime, on YouTube, and on PBS. And, um, yeah, and that's, that's about it. Outside of that, you can find me in a boat yard working away on a boat until I get this thing in the water and go to Greenland. Then you ain't going to find me at all. Cause I'm going to be in Greenland and <laughs> no one can find me in Greenland. Will you send me pictures of the boat so I can share that with the listeners? Yeah, I got pictures. Okay. Got cool. pictures. Matt, thank you for taking time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. This has been, I'm sure there's so many more stories yeah. that, I would boggle my mind. I'm jealous that you got to see the Milky Way from a moonless night in the middle of the ocean. That's, and I'm sure you've seen the Northern Lights, which I that's on my. Oh book. yeah, yeah. Never seen the Northern Lights, so. Yeah, you earn it, man. It's like it's like the view from the top of a mountain. You know, you earn that view. You get up there and you earn that view. The the stars in the middle of the ocean. You go out there and you earn it, and you just look up and take those little moments to enjoy what you've uh, worked hard to create. <laughs> 
or at least worked hard to get to at the very least. Uh, well, I think Shackleton would be proud of you for sure. Sounds like well. <laughs> uh, an extraordinary life that is <laughs> keep going. And, and I'm glad to hear personally that, that you have a mind that is leading you to try and figure out how to help humanity as well. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, might as well do something productive with our time. And uh, I'm trying to get back to the ocean. Honestly, I'm trying to help humanity, but you know what? I'm really trying to help the ocean. I ain't going to lie. I'm a little more leaning towards the ocean <laughs> than I am humanity, but I'm yeah. trying to help one way or another. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help. I don't know if there's, I don't know how much help there is for you for, well, there's help. That sounds terrible. That sounds so uh, negative. Um, I think there's hope for humanity. I just don't know what we're going to do with it. But let's, uh, the ocean needs a few more people to, to look out for it. Mother Earth needs people in her corner, for sure. So that's what I'm doing. I'm hanging with Mother Earth. That's right. Thank you for listening, everybody. And remember, I'll put links on heyhumanpodcast.com for a bunch of the stuff we talked about. So it's easy for you to find things. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.